Hello there, my name is Freddie. I am the pastor of young adults here at the Downs Road campus, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John today. It is 41 verses long, chapter nine, so you will need a Bible. You may be familiar with the name Alanis Morissette, uh, who is most likely well-known for the song, Isn't It Ironic? Uh, I was practicing because I planned on singing it tonight, but my wife told me, Maybe you should stick to preaching. So I'll just read you some lyrics. She's in the room, so I, I don't want to get chirped later. Uh, I'm going to give you just a, a stanza from this song. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And who would have thought it? It figures. The, the irony of this song being called Is It Not Ironic is that nothing in the song is truly ironic. What she is describing are what we would call coincidences, right? If you're running late somewhere and you hit a red light, the difference between being seven minutes late and nine minutes late is one red light. That's just called a coincidence. It's not ironic at all, you're already late. You should expect to be late, even if you hit another red light. Irony is the collision between reality and your expectation when you expect one thing and you get something completely different. It is a literary device that is often used by authors, by poets, to grab your attention. The story's going along and you're thinking, it's gonna end up here. This is reality, or this is my expectation, but it ends up over here. This is reality. The, the writer of the Gospel of John, John the Evangelist, tells us a story in John chapter nine that is tremendously ironic. We meet a man who is blind, but 41 verses later, by the end of this story, we realize that he is the only one who can truly see. The dude who was blind ends up being the only guy who truly sees Jesus for who he is, who understands him to be God. John the Evangelist uses irony to help us, to help the audience of his book know that Jesus is God. So tonight we have a simple big idea. Only the blind will see. Only the blind will see. We're gonna read through this passage, all 41 verses, so bear with me. We're gonna read it in four different chunks because there's four distinct scenes. And then I wanna end with two applications at the very end. So our first scene, the presence of pain, John chapter nine, starting in verse one. As he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? so that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're jumping in here in chapter nine. If you've been with us the last number of weeks, you would know we've been going through the gospel of John. And John chapter nine is the continuation of events that began all the way back in chapter seven. From chapter seven, verse two, all the way to chapter 10, verse 22, we have about two months of time. And our passage here in, in John chapter nine begins with, as he passed by. We have no idea how close it is to the previous events, the previous events being the, the Feast of Booths. But we know that in those two months, Jesus must have been in the temple. He must have been teaching because chapter eight, verse 20 tells us that he is debating the Pharisees in the temple. So in those two months between these two historical events, Jesus is teaching people. They're responding to him, they're reacting to him. 
you were here last week, you would know that chapter eight records the most violent, most vicious discussion to date in the gospel of John. The Pharisees have been opposing him since all the way back in chapter five, but by chapter eight, it's very public. Their critiques are very pointed. And chapter eight ends with them picking up stones to kill Jesus. He escapes the temple as they're picking up stones, planning to murder him on the very steps. And then verse nine, or chapter nine begins with, as he passed by. We don't know if it was the same day or the same week or even the same month, but we know that this story in chapter nine happened in that two month chunk. And chapter nine opens with the classic blame game. We're all familiar with this, of course. When we see something wrong in the world, we wanna, we wanna find out why. Why is it wrong? Who, who did this? Who is the culprit? Imagine with me, you come home and your living room is trashed, right? Throw pillows everywhere, blankets everywhere. Someone murdered the throw pillows. There's like the guts of fluffy stuff everywhere. Your very first thought would be, who, who, let, like, who didn't put the dog away? Right, who left the gate open? Who didn't close the kennel? And then you're pointing at your kids, right? Which one of you did, or your spouse? Which one of you did this? We wanna find who is responsible when things go wrong. We don't have a dog, uh, but in my own life, I do have someone who leaves stuff everywhere. My lovely wife has a long history of playing Hansel and Gretel, right? She leaves things wherever she's going so that I might find her in the house whenever I'm searching for her. And... Uh, and I always do, praise God. One of, one of the recent experiences was she had been in a room and then she went to a different room and somewhere between room A and room B, she left slippers behind. And the slippers happened to be left behind on a set of stairs. We live in that BC box, that split level housing with an inexplicable three steps that are designed to uh, hurt people. And that is almost what happened. I'm going down the steps, I trip on a slipper, I catch myself on the railing because whoever framed this house followed the, the codes. So I was very thankful for that person. But as I kind of stumbled at the bottom, I'm thinking, all right, who did this? And I'm looking, I'm pointing, I'm trying to blame somebody. I almost died. Someone is gonna pay for this. And then I looked down and realized that they are my slippers. Uh, it, <laughs> It, it may have been me, I don't know. Rebecca still has not taken responsibility. I'm fairly confident it was her. But, but we experience this. We want to blame someone when something is wrong, right? This is a funny example, but the disciples have a much more real example, a man who was blind his entire life. And they look at this and they ask the question that anyone would ask, who caused this? Who is to blame Jesus? This man has never seen. Was it his sin? Or was it his parents' sin? And the question is profound, right? Because the question beneath their question is, can we explain suffering? Do Christians have a compelling explanation for why bad things happen in the world as they inevitably do? And the answer, of course, is yes, Christians do have a compelling explanation for suffering generally, but for each individual experience of suffering, I'm not sure anyone can know. And the disciples step into this moment and they try to over-explain things. They're guilty of a half-truth. What they got right was ultimately every sin can be explained, or every, every instance of suffering can be explained by the presence of sin in our world. What they did not get right was that we are not always responsible for the suffering 
in our own life. I want to show you a couple verses that make this very clear. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a, a story at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 that is the root cause of every instance of human suffering. Everything bad in the world, decay, disease, death, happens in the world after Genesis 3. Adam disobeyed God, he disobeyed God's commands, and as a result of that, sin entered the world, and sin has ruined everything. Sin has corrupted everything. So every instance of suffering, in a way, can be pointed to as the result of sin. But that's not the question the disciples were asking. They were looking at a specific event. And they were saying, well, who sinned in this event? And their error is that we don't always get what we deserve. Jesus explicitly teaches us this in Luke chapter 13. He says these words. There were, some, there were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. A bunch of people are before Jesus and they tell him, a bunch of people died, very tragically. Jesus explained this event to us. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' words in Luke 13 remind us that if everyone got what they deserved, they would all perish. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So when we look at individual experiences, when we look at individual instances of suffering, we can't always explain why. We shouldn't explain why. The disciples look at a man who was born blind. His entire life, this man had never seen. And rather than compassion, rather than patience, Rather than prayer, they want to know who did it, who caused it. And Jesus gently reminds them, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. Suffering is an opportunity for the Lord to work, for the church to come around people. But we cannot explain every instance of suffering. What we do know is God is working in the midst of all of it. The story begins with the presence of pain, and then we shift into the next scene, blindness from birth. So John chapter nine, starting in verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, no, it is he. And others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I I'm the man. It, it is me, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? 
Where's Jesus? He said, I don't, I don't know. Then they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. As we shift into the next scene, Jesus makes a very large claim about himself. I am the light of the world, verse five. And if you remember the series that we've been in, this is not the first time that Jesus has said that. Back in two, two weeks ago, back in chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And where there is light, there is heat. And as Jesus said these things to the crowds, people got fired up. They understood what he was claiming. He was claiming to be life. He was claiming to be God. And the Pharisees get fired up. They're angry. They get in his face. And they start saying all kinds of really nasty things about him. This is just from chapter eight. Your testimony is not true. You're a liar. We... We're not born of sexual immorality. We know who our daddy is. Can you say that, Jesus, you illegitimate child? You have a demon. He's cursed. The Pharisees, when they hear Jesus' words get in his face, they are attacking him all through chapter eight. And it culminates with them wanting to kill him. It is not enough to murder him with their words. They want to murder him with stones. And now, as we jump into chapter nine, Jesus says the exact same thing. Why? Because it's true. Jesus is the light of the world. And as he says this, his words are incredibly intentional. He's saying this because the man who is blind needs to see the light. And this is one of those moments when scripture is so much more profound than we first realize. If you're reading through this and, you know, in a Bible reading plan or you just heard the sermon, you're kind of zoning out. You just, yeah, Jesus is the light of the world. I get it. Jesus is important. And then you move on. But the, this points to something even deeper. The, the very fabric of our being is integrated into this story. If, if you remember back when you were in high school and you learned something about sci in science class about the human eye, you would know that the only way that human eyes can see anything is because light shines from the sun and reflects off everything around you and that is what your eyes pick up. Your eyes can only see light. And they see light with special cells in the back of them called photoreceptors that transfers that light into an electrical signal that goes into your brain and projects the images that you see. And when, when Jesus is speaking to a blind man who cannot see what that blind man needs is truly light for his eyes to work. And even deeper than that, even if his eyes work, this man needs light so that he can truly see Jesus for who he is. The blind man must be healed so that his eyes work so that he can truly see Jesus. So Jesus steps up. And there's a few details that the text makes clear that I really wanna emphasize. The, the identity of the man is really, really important. We're not given his name because that part doesn't matter, but we are told about his condition. He is consistently called a man. This might seem insignificant to you, but it, it matters a lot. This man means that he could have been anywhere from age 13 to age 50. Like the, the Hebrew text would use a different word for an older man and a different word for a younger man. But a man could be literally anyone from 13 to 50. So this man is someone who has been blind over a decade. 
and who has never once seen. His entire life, he has not been able to see. The word that gets used to describe his blindness only means blindness, and it means total blindness. He's not like a little bit hard of seeing. He's not like kind of blind. He's not like, you know, dim in the eyes. He is blind as a bat. His eyes do not work. They have never seen light in the entirety of his life. Uh, I remember when I was in middle school many, many years ago, not as many as Mark, but uh, many, uh, I, there was an optometrist who came to our science class and he brought this bucket full of goggles and he passed them out to everybody and the goggles mimicked nearsightedness or farsightedness, right? And as we all put them on, then he gave us tasks to do, right? So nearsightedness is you can only see things that are near and your eyes don't work very well. You see blurry things in the, in the distance or farsightedness, you see really well in the distance, but you can't, like, you can't read, you can't see things close to you. So he gave us the goggles, we put them on, and then he assigned us tasks to do. And it was a fun slash frustrating experience uh, because I, I couldn't see very good. I was used to seeing, and now all of a sudden I couldn't see. The man in our story had never been able to see. Glasses wouldn't have helped him. The optometrist couldn't have helped him. No amount of science could have helped this man. What he needed was a miracle. And that's what Jesus sets out to do. So Jesus makes mud for a miracle. And this is, again, a, a little twist in the story because you're starting to think, what on earth are you doing, Jesus? Uh, how is mud gonna fix someone's eyes? Right, in, in one sense, it could be Jesus being really superstitious, where he wants to do a little ritual and the mud's gonna be special and he's gonna do some incantations over it, slap it on the dude's face, and he will see. But we're told he just spits, makes mud, throws it on the eyes, Go. The story's a little bit weird. As I was looking at it this week, it reminded me of, of a great scene from my big fat Greek wedding. Uh, if you've never seen it, it is a rom-com from the 2000s. And one of the characters that, speaking about her dad has like one of my favorite movie lines of all time. My dad believed in two things, that Greeks should educate non-Greeks about being Greek, and every ailment from psoriasis to poison ivy can be cured with Windex. And uh, that line is funny in and of itself, but even more so because in my own life, my dad was very much like that, but not with Windex. For my dad, it was Vaporub, right? that Vicks Vaporub, those little cans, you all know them. Uh, it did not matter what was wrong with me. My dad knew that Vaporub could fix it. I would go to him and I'm like, congestion. He's like, Vaporub. I go to him, dad, seasonal allergies. He's like, don't put it near your eyes, but Vaporub. Uh, I, Dad, I uh, back pain, vapor rub. Dad, I have a concussion, vapor rub. Like, it didn't even make sense, but my dad truly believed that vapor rub would fix everything. And as we read this story, we can kind of get the impression that Jesus just thinks the dirt's gonna be special. His spit is special, it's gonna fix everything. But it's not. The point of the story isn't the spit, it's not the pool he goes to, it's not the command he gives, it's who Jesus is. It's not the miracle, it is the miracle giver. And this Jesus who does this miracle is different than every single person here. When was the last time that you actually like fixed someone's injury by rubbing dirt in it? It's never happened. We say it, but it never works. When was the last time someone got healed by jumping into the MRC pool? It's never happened. But Jesus commands someone to go 
and it actually works. Something is special about who Jesus is. His healing, his teaching, the things he says about himself. I am the light of the world. Those kinds of things. They remind us that Jesus is God. He's doing the works of God in healing people, in helping people. We can't do that. Only God can do that. And John wants you to see that Jesus is God. Jesus is the only person who can help someone. No one in the story sees clearly. We meet a blind man, but we realize actually everyone in the story is blind. No one can see because no one sees Jesus for who he is. And worst of all, the neighbors reacting to this miracle, reacting to this wonderful sign that Jesus did, their very first question, is this the guy? Is it, is it truly him who was, who was a beggar? No, it's someone who looks like it. It couldn't be him. They focus on the man. They focus on the miracle, not on the miracle giver. And they totally miss Jesus. We see blindness from birth, not just in the blind man, but in everyone else in the story. And our scene shifts again. Third scene, division and debate. John chapter nine, starting in verse 15. This is the longest section. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he, he is a prophet. He, he is special. I know this man is different. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you wanna hear it again? Do you also wanna be his disciples? Which is a hilarious thing. This guy's pretty sassy. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? and they cast him out. This story, as we shift into our third scene, has three distinct phases to the investigation. So I just wanna look at each one in part. 
Part one of the investigation is the Pharisees and the blind man. They bring him in and the Pharisees ask him, how are you healed? And he gives the Coles Notes versions. Jesus, mud, wash, I see, right? Fast, right? Very similar to when you ask your kids, how was school? And they always give you the exact same answer, which is good. It was fine, fine. Thank you for asking, good, right? Short, sweet, and leaving you with a whole bunch of questions. So you ask them more. Good parents ask them more questions. The Pharisees are not good parents. They jump to conclusions. They're like, ah, we've heard all we need. The man is a sinner. He's not from God. You're like, what in, what in, how did you get there? How did they go from that when he just said, Jesus, uh, pool, wash, healed? They got there because they already knew what they believed. Jesus did one thing that distracted them and one thing only. This is a matter of the Sabbath. This story is a debate about theology regarding the Sabbath. The historical context is is pretty significant here. Around the time of Jesus in Second Temple Judaism, Sabbath keeping became one of the chief ways that Jewish people maintained their identity as the people of God. It was a very visible, very external thing that separated Jewish people, God-fearers, the worshipers of the one true God from literally everyone else on the planet. And it became so significant that they even counted the number of steps you could take in a day. They were so committed to this. And they were committed in part because God literally commanded it. God commanded us to keep the Sabbath holy. So this is Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse eight, what we would call the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. It's very clear. You ought not work on the Sabbath. No one should work on the Sabbath. The key question is this. What counts as work? What counts as work? Because that will become what determines if someone is a Sabbath breaker or someone is obedient to who God is. I wanna give you two stories, Numbers 15 and Mark 3, and I wanna compare them and how the stories interact with the Sabbath. So Numbers 15, starting in verse 32. The people of Israel are in the wilderness. While they're in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. If you have read this story before in your Bible reading plan, this is one of those moments when you're like, oh my goodness, the Bible is crazy. The God of the Old Testament is a monster. That's what people think. If you know the story though, and you're not reading just Numbers 15, you're reading all the way from Genesis into Exodus, into Leviticus, into Numbers, you would understand why God gives such a harsh punishment. In Exodus 16, God made a way for the people of Israel to be fed in the desert. If you've ever been anywhere where like the nature is not kind, where there's sand and tremendous heat and no food or water, you, you would know that you must pack your gear. You need food to be kept alive. They did not have refrigerators. Uh, they had no way of p- 
unpacking things with them. So if the people of Israel were not gonna starve to death or die of thirst, they needed supernatural daily intervention, which starting in Exodus 16, they had. Every single day, God would send manna from heaven. Bread would literally fall from the sky and the people would gather it and they would make cakes and they would eat. And on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, they were, they were given twice as much food so that they could prepare enough food on Friday to eat Friday and Saturday. And God explicitly commanded them. God did this to test the people of Israel, to ask them, to prove to them that he would in fact provide for them and to test their faith. Will they trust God to daily give them what they need? The man in this story is showing himself to have zero faith in God. He does not trust God to provide for him. So he's out there finding enough sticks to make enough food because he sure hopes he doesn't starve to death. And he's given a punishment. I wanna compare this to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three. And he, so he is, being, is Jesus, said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus' opponents in this story are Pharisees the same religious leaders that Jesus is already interacting with. And he asked them, is it right to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. In the second story, you have a man who has a physical deformity, who needs supernatural healing and Jesus grants him healing. The question for us, is there a difference between work, between providing for yourself and mercy or healing? I, I think we would say, yes, there is a difference. There has to be a difference, right? God doing something miraculous on a Sabbath is not work. It's God doing the works of God all the way from nine, chapter nine, verse three. That's what God does. He heals, he helps. But these Jewish leaders are so distracted they're like, ah, no, you, you, you can't do a healing. They're angry at who Jesus is. Because of the healing, they're saying, no, he's, he, he worked on the Sabbath. He deserves what the man in Numbers 15 got. He's a, he's a Sabbath breaker. He doesn't have faith in God. He, he is wicked. They're struggling to get out all their critiques because they're so angry. And they ask the man, well, what do you think he is knowing he broke the Sabbath? And the man very boldly says, he is a prophet. And that makes them even more mad. So they doubled down. We move into phase two of the investigation. They bring in his parents. And the guys are thinking, okay, if the man isn't backing us, he's gotta be a plant. Like there is no way that this is actually a blind man. Jesus set this up to you know, create a scenario where he looks amazing, steals all our thunder, and takes away our, our position of power. So they bring in the parents and they're like, okay, is this actually your son? But before we get to that, there's a distinction we need to see in the passage that if you're just flying by, you might miss. We're, we already know the opponents are the Pharisees. But within the Pharisees, we meet a second group of people referred to as the Jews. Verse 16 told us there was a division amongst them. And you're like, well, what's, what's the division? Well, the Pharisees, group of people, religious leaders. And within this group of people, there is a subgroup that gets referred to as the Jews and these are the ones who are opposing Jesus. We see this hinted at previously in the Gospel of John because there are Pharisees that seem warm to who Jesus is. If you remember John chapter four, Nicodemus, 
a Pharisee, comes to Jesus asking to be taught. So there were at least some Pharisees who didn't hate Jesus. They didn't want him murdered. But there were some who were incredibly hostile, who called him an illegitimate child, a sinner, someone possessed by a demon. And the rest of the investigation in phase two and phase three is carried out by this group of people, these Jews, these religious leaders who oppose Jesus. And their questions are so basic. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How was he healed? Right? They, they already have all the answers, but they're, they're pressing the parents now. And the parents give equally short answers. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was blind. We have no idea how he got healed. And they totally dodge him. And this part of the story is interesting for us because you would think the parents would try to advocate for their son. Like they would take his side. They would want to protect him. He's done nothing wrong. He's been healed. How is he the bad guy here? But they totally ditch him. They say he's of age. He can speak for himself. And John gives us a narrator's note in verse 22. The parents said this because they were afraid. They feared getting kicked out of the synagogue. They, they knew there was real world consequences. If they're caught being like supporters of Jesus, they're gone. They're kicked out of Jewish life and they're afraid of that. So they dodge the question and the Jews turn back to the son. Phase three of the investigation. This is now the second time that they're pressing the son. So they up the ante a little bit. Give glory to God. Very direct. And this phrase actually comes to us from Joshua chapter seven. And the, the literary context of it is be so truthful as to risk your life because you are being so honest, giving so much detail, right? More colloquially, like in modern speech, we would say no cap, dead ass for real, for real. If you're a Gen Z or if you're not a Gen Z and you understood nothing that I said, you would say, tell us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What they want from this man is the truth, but they want their truth. And they're pressing him. They're trying to guilt him. They're trying to pressure him with the most theological language they can find. And the rest of the story is them going back and forth, back and forth. And in the interest of time, I want to summarize all of it around one simple question. The debate between the man born blind and the Jewish leaders is who is Jesus? Who is this man? Is he who he claims to be? Is he a liar? Is he a sinner? The lines become pretty clear. The Jews are blind. They've already called him a liar, an illegitimate child, and said he's cursed because he has a demon, all the way back in chapter eight. Here, they say he is a sinner, and we don't know where he comes from. They keep coming back to this idea. Like, we don't even know who Jesus' daddy is, bro. Like, why are we gonna listen to this guy? They're attacking him. They're pressing him. They're trying to humiliate him and shame him in front of the blind man. But the blind man, I guess more accurately, the ex-blind man is the only one who can truly see. And we see a movement inside his heart through the words he says from the beginning of the story to the end. In verse 11, he says, the, the man called Jesus, that's who healed me. He sees Jesus as a man. In verse 17, when the Pharisees are pressing him, he says, well, no, no, he's a prophet. He, he, like he did this miracle, I, I know he's a prophet. And then in the debate between the Jews and the blind man, he says, no, 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 this is a man from God. We see this growth in how he views Jesus and we see the solidifying of lines, battle lines between the Jewish leaders and the blind man. And the story ends, this division and debate ends 
with the blind man being cast out. What the parents only feared actually happened to him. They cast him out of Jewish life. He is no longer welcome in the synagogue. And now we shift to the fourth scene. Judgment from Jesus. John chapter nine, starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And you have to imagine there's a pause where the guy's like, I've never seen you before. My eyes didn't work the first time you were here, but now I've seen you. And he responds in the only way people should. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him on his face, praising who Jesus is. And then Jesus says some very interesting things. Verse 39, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This story ends on a high note and then with a very interesting question. The high note is that the man who was cast out doesn't remain alone. Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes to him and reveals who he truly is. The story, John chapter nine, began with a man who had never seen and Seven verses later, he sees, and by the end of the passage, by verse 37, the man sees Jesus truly. He is looking with his own eyes on the Son of God. This man went from blind to being physically and spiritually able to see. And he moves to worship in verse 38. He's bowing before Jesus, praising him. And again, this is another very clear statement by John as to who Jesus is. You and I get incredibly uncomfortable when people praise us, like even with the most mundane of things. If you got a fresh haircut and someone says, dog, that's a nice haircut, you're like, ah, you know, it was all right. Like I, I overpaid for it and I didn't actually do what I asked them to do, but like, thank you, I appreciate it. Like we, we struggle with compliments. Or I'm like, oh, that's a cute jacket. That's a cute car. Ah, I actually got it used. It's actually 75 years old. I don't even know how it's still together, right? Or, hey, Great work today, man. I really appreciate you stepping up. Oh, you know what? I'm just part of the team. Honestly, anyone could have done it. I don't even know how I'm still employed here, right? We, we minimize constantly. Excessive praise makes us uncomfortable because deep down, we know that we don't really deserve it. We know we're flawed. Jesus does deserve it. And in this story, there is a man on his hands and face before Jesus praising him. We're told worship and worship is like, Jesus, you're the greatest. Jesus, you're the best. Oh my goodness, Jesus, I can see, I can see, I can see. And Jesus just sits there and says nothing. He receives that worship. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who truly deserves it. If Jesus is the God of the universe, the God who can heal without even speaking it, then he does deserve worship. And this man the blind man, the man who couldn't see, is the only one who truly understands who Jesus is and is on his face before him, worshiping him in the way that he deserves. But Jesus ends with a very powerful statement. It doesn't end with the worship scene. It would be a little bit easier for us if it ended with the worship scene. He ends with a challenge. Jesus says some very hard words. Verse 39, for judgment I came into this world 
and we feel a little bit uncomfortable. What does that mean, Jesus? What do you mean judgment? I thought, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16. What is this judgment, Jesus? And the judgment is explained in the verse. The blind will see, and those who see will be blind. Judgment is, could be de- described as discernment, as recognition that there are two teams, and you must choose your side. Jesus ends chapter nine by telling everyone who's present, do you see who I am? You have to accept it, and if you do not accept it, you are actively rejecting it. There are two teams. Which team are you on? Jesus says this kind of thing all throughout the Gospels. I want to show you one more. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The image of the sword is helpful because swords cut. They separate things. And Jesus' words, Jesus' person is doing the very same thing. When you see who Jesus is, He claims to be the light of the world. When you see who Jesus is, he heals people and receives their worship. You either join his team or you reject him. There are two teams. Everyone picks their side. And if you choose to follow Jesus, there will be a cost. We see that in the man born blind who is cast out from all the community he ever knew. This passage ends with some very difficult words by Jesus. And we see the paradox of belief in these difficult words because Jesus is commanding the people or he's showing the people who he is and he's challenging them. You have to pick your side. And yet we know that if Jesus does not open their eyes, they will not see him for who he is. That's the principal difference in the story between the blind man and literally everyone else. The blind man is given eyes to see by Jesus. The blind man is pursued by Jesus. We need Jesus to give us light so we can see and we need him to reveal himself so that we can see him as he truly is. This is the reason that I'm telling you that only the blind will see. That's the big idea for today because if Jesus doesn't step in to fix that blindness, you will not see. And I wanna end with this. I wanna end with two applications very quickly. The first is you must believe in Jesus. Jesus' whole point is that you would know that there are two teams and that you must pick him. John chapter nine makes it clear that everyone is spiritually blind. Your eyes work fine, you can see, but you cannot see Jesus for who he truly is without God's help. The blind man received God's help. He saw Jesus as the bread of life, as living water, as light of the world. And we all need that very same thing because everyone else in the story missed it. The Jews thought Jesus was wicked, an illegitimate child, a sinner. And modern people are not so cruel. We use kinder words. Jesus is a teacher, an advisor, a friend. But John makes it clear, Jesus is more than that. Jesus is God. Jesus seeks the lost. Jesus does the works of God. So if you see Jesus as God, you must believe in him. You must. If you've been given eyes to see, See Jesus for who he is and believe in him. That's our first application. Our second application is listen to Jesus. An interesting detail in this story 
is that the man who was blind heard Jesus before he ever saw him. He heard Jesus in verse four, but he didn't see Jesus until verse 37 when Jesus revealed himself to him again. But he, he knew something of Jesus. He had heard his command, go and wash. But he sees him in verse 37. He sees him in verse 38. This blind man is a great example of what faith looks like. You respond to God to the best of your abilities. He couldn't see him, but he sure could obey. And then once he could see him and obey him, he starts worshiping him. After you believe, Christian life doesn't stop. It doesn't, Christian life starts with your eyes being able to see and you seeing Jesus for who he is, but it continues. It's an ongoing process and we continue hearing the words of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that the words of Jesus are actually in the scriptures. Scripture teaches us that it is living and active, the very words of God. So when you hear God's word, when you read God's word, you are still hearing Jesus. You're still responding to who he is. Here at Northview, we constantly come back to this, this vision statement of making, helping people become deeply rooted disciples of Jesus. And that's why we do so much of what we do. That's why we're doing the Northview reading plan because we want you in God's word because we think you can actually hear God's words by reading it. We, that's why we have TLC courses starting up in a couple of weeks because we think you need to know what God teaches you about how to live. This whole story reminds us to believe in Jesus and if you have believed in Jesus, to listen to him. This whole, the whole story, the four scenes, presence of pain, blindness from birth, division and debate, Jesus and judgment, they reveal to us that blind people can actually see. The, the man who was blind in the story ends by being able to see. And everyone in the story who had actual eyes that worked is revealed to be blind. John the evangelist uses irony. The blind man sees and those who see are actually blind to help us see who Jesus is. If you don't see Jesus for who he is, my prayer is that a day like today, when you hear his story, would be a moment where you actually can see who Jesus is. Only the blind will see, but the good news is Jesus gives sight to the blind. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna go into worship through singing. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this promise, Lord, that you give sight to the blind. Father, in a room of this size, surely there are people here who have never believed. There are people here who think Jesus is a teacher, a friend, someone who says nice things, but they've missed it, that you're actually God, that you heal and you save and you seek the lost. So Father, I pray that people would see you clearly today. And for those who have already seen you, who have already responded, Father, I pray that they would continue seeking your voice, that they would hear you and respond in worship. Father, we're about to sing, so I pray that we sing loud in thankfulness to who you are. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.